Hello, everybody. Can you all hear me okay through the poly? Yep. Okay, so uh, welcome to the last ESC seminar of the month of May. Um, and uh, before we start, I'm just going to give some brief announcements. Um, first, uh, remember to take care of yourself as tomorrow, June 1st, is National Safety Month. Um, DOI <laughs> offers employee assistance um, program resources, and you can take a look at the link, uh, which I will post later in the chat. Um, there's the 2023 Earthquake Al County Al Country Alliance Bay Area Spring Workshop at the Belmont Sport Complex on June 15th from 9 to noon. Um, and our very own Max Schneider will be giving the quick break. So the workshop is free, um, so please register. Um, Building 19 residents, electrical power will be turned off on Monday, June 5th from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., so please make other work arrangements on that day. Um, the GMAG seminar on June 8th um, is going to be given by Owen Callahan on fault studies, heterogeneity, healing, and hot springs. Um, also, the, uh, please say hi to the new um, ESCAO, Christina Hearn, who's sitting um, at Moffett Field in Trudy's old office. Um, and finally, this is, um, uh, well, Evan and I officially are no longer going to be the seminar chairs after today, um, although Evan is on vacation, so he signed off two weeks ago. So today I'm going to be signing off and passing the torch on to Curtis Baden and Max Schneider. So for future seminar uh, rec recommendations, please send them an email. Um, and I will also uh, go on to introduce today's seminar speaker, um, Victor Tsai from Brown. Um, Victor got his bachelor's in geophysics from Caltech and his master's and PhD both from Harvard where he was advised by Jim Bryce. From 2009 to 2011, he was a Mendenhall postdoc at the Geologic Hazards Science Center in Golden and then returned to Caltech where he served as a professor in the Sangro lab for nearly a decade before joining the faculty at Brown. Throughout his career, Victor has applied creative approaches on a very large range of topics in seismology, ranging from glaciers, ambient noise tomography, ground motion, debris flow, and most recently, earthquake complexity, which is apparently the topic of today's talk. He has been recognized by an AGU Keiichi Aki Young Scientist Award, an SSA Charles Richter Award, and an NSF Career Grant. Um, he's also been an incredible mentor, always giving insightful advice about both scientific and professional questions. And most recently is also a new dad, so we really appreciate him taking time <laughs> off from what probably amounts to a second full-time job to give a talk today. So without further ado, Victor, take it. Uh, thanks, Shanna, for that nice introduction. Um, indeed, I, I was just doing baby care this morning. <laughs> so um, anyway, it's, it's um, great to be here, um, and I'm glad all of you could make it to this talk. Um, before I get started on the talk, I just wanted to mention my co-authors. So this has been done in collaboration with Greg Hearth um, from Brown, uh, Daniel Trickman from the University of Nevada, Reno. Um, yours truly, Shanna. Uh, Shanna Chu was a postdoc with me uh, who did a lot of uh, some of the work um, shown here. Um, and then I have a new student, Jay Sock Lee, um, who has been uh, following up on some of this uh, more recently. So. Uh, what am I going to talk about today? Well, today I'm really going to talk about trying to understand um, earthquake ground motions. Um, and to some extent, this is different from just uh, uh, trying to determine empirical relationships, but really trying to understand the fundamental reasons um, that uh, ground motions look the way that they do. Um, and also to try to be able to predict uh, what those ground motions are for different places. 
So, um, and also before I go on, feel free to ask questions during the talk. Um, I assume Shanna can uh, relay those to me um, if, if you have questions um, or I can take questions at the end. Okay, so, um, sorry, did someone say something? No. Okay, uh, so today I'm gonna focus uh, on trying to understand high frequency ground motions um, and particularly because uh, these are the ground motions that um, are often the ones that damage uh, buildings and uh, contribute to uh, fatalities. Uh, so um, as probably everyone in the audience here knows, uh, there are multiple uh, causes or multiple things that affect the high frequency ground motions in particular um, there are path and site terms that contribute to what those ground motions are. Um, but fundamentally, um, the reason that there are high frequency ground motions in the first place um, are because of the earthquake source. Um, and that's the part that I'm going to focus this talk on today. Um, and here, um, I just have one example of, um, of an earthquake. This is the Loma Prieta earthquake um, from 1989 that I'm sure a lot of you um, know um, very well. Um, and this is a very near field record. So this is uh, from 18 kilometers uh, away, from the, um, away from the hypocenter. Um, and this is just showing the acceleration as a function of time during the earthquake. Um, and as you can see, um, there's quite a bit of high frequency ground motion. Um, and part of the, uh, what I'm trying to uh, explain today is let's say, why is there this high frequency ground motion? And how would this high frequency ground motion be different um, for different earthquakes? Um, so is the Loma Prieta earthquake usual, unusual? Um, are there things that we can um, predict about uh, its location uh, or about the high frequency ground motions based on its location or based on other characteristics? Um, so um, that's what I'm going to spend most of today talking about. Um, and this trying to understand these high frequency ground motions um, is a bit in contrast to um, trying to understand low frequency ground motions. So here I just have an example um, of how we actually understand extremely well um, the low frequency ground motions from earthquakes. Um, and this is just one example, um, but this is showing that moment tensor models generally explain low frequency ground motions incredibly well. Um, this is from one of the most complex um, earthquakes uh, that occurred um, in the recorded history. Uh, so this is the Sumatra 2004 Sumatra earthquake. Um, but if you only look at the relatively low frequencies, and here um, I forget exactly what the um, frequency band is, but it's um, it's in the um, maybe 20 to 30 second and longer period range here. Um, and you can see compared um, the, the data in, in black um, for the vertical uh, longitudinal and transverse components of ground motion um, compared with um, synthetics in gray. Um, and these synthetics are due to a relatively simple um, five point source uh, moment tensor model um, for the earthquake. Um, and as I hope you can see, um, the synthetics do a remarkable job in matching the data at these relatively low frequencies. So almost every single wiggle in the vertical, longitudinal, and transverse um, components of ground motion at these relatively low frequencies, um, even for a relatively complex earthquake like the Sumatra earthquake, um, we can predict to um, a high degree of accuracy. Um, and this is true not just for this one station, um, but this is true um, basically for all of the stations in the global network. Um, so this is in contrast 
to what I'm going to talk about today, which is about the high-frequency ground motions. So unfortunately, um, high-frequency ground motions are not so easily understood, um, meaning that for example, the ground motion models that people use uh, to try to predict what the ground motions are um, at different sites that we have um, generally have a very limited understanding of what causes the inter-event uh, variability that's observed from earthquake to earthquake. Um, so in the typical ground motion models, um, there are various terms that, that have a source component, for example, the faulting style um, and how that affects ground motions. Um, but generally, these um, empirical correlations um, are not very well understood in terms of why they exist in the first place and um, if they can do a good job in explaining um, why different events have different amounts of ground motions um, at the high frequencies. So this is the problem that I'm going to talk about today. Um, if we can try to explain um, what causes these high frequency ground motions. Um, and I'm going to spend... Um, pretty much the entire talk um, tr uh, showing, or, or sorry, be, okay, before I go to that, um, uh, it, in addition to the ground motion models not um, uh, doing a, uh, not, not understanding the um, cause of these high frequency ground motions, um, simulations also do not do a great job in explaining um, what those ground motions are. Um, and so I'm going to show just one example of what those um, what those simulations look like for the sort of state-of-the-art um, simulations that are um, people have been doing today. Um, this is just one example from Eric Dunham's group up, um, up at Stanford. Um, but this is one example showing that if you put in a, a semi-realistic um, kind of uh, rough fault um, and you do dynamic rupture simulations on this rough fault, um, then you can get uh, what appear to be quite complex ground motions um, with this uh, wave field being depicted in this in this plot over here um, with the uh, you can see the um, the s wave being uh, radiated outward in this reddish color um, and you can see the complexity in terms of how uh, the these colors uh, sort of oscillate um, in in space and so um, these models, um, have been getting better and better. And they're at the bottom of my slide is just a list of some of the recent um, simulations that try to get into more and more um, realism in terms of um, how to uh, think about these ground motions. Um, but one of the challenges is that they don't actually um, predict the observed ground motions all that well. Um, this is a plot on the lower, uh, lower right here of the acceleration spectral amplitude as a function of frequency. Um, so taking the um, taking this snapshot um, of the ground motions and converting it into the frequency domain. Um, and as you can see here, uh, there's differences in how much of the high frequency ground motions are excited, uh, depending on uh, uh, what kind of roughness they put in. So if they put in a flat uh, non-rough fault, they have less fre high frequency ground motions. Um, and if they put in a realistic amount of roughness, this sort of 10 to the minus three roughness, meaning that the amplitude of the roughness is approximately 10 to the minus three times the um, length scale um, or the wavelength um, of that roughness. Um, then you get this sort of prediction here where this reddish color um, shows um, the predictions um, for that 10 to the minus three roughness. Um, unfortunately, um, what's actually observed, and I'm not gonna um, show why this is the case, but 
um, if you take that Loma Prieta example, um, for example, you find that at the, at the high frequencies, if you're in the near field um, where the waves have not yet attenuated away, what's generally observed is that the acceleration spectrum is relatively flat um, across this frequency range. Um, so what's observed is that, the, um, that there's uh, not much decay in terms of the energy from low frequencies up to high frequencies through this frequency range. Um, but what these models predict um, is still with realistic roughness that there's a, a significant decay of energy um, at high frequencies. And so today I'm gonna to try to talk about why, um, uh, whether we can understand um, what causes that additional high frequency ground motion that is not being captured, for example, in these, um, these state-of-the-art simulations. Um, and what I'm gonna focus on today is um, the, the potential cause that complex geometries within the fault zone um, can, um, how that can result in um, additional components to the ground motions. Um, and the motivation for this is really that uh, basically all the uh, field observations that people have made um, from around the world in different fault zones have shown that fault zones are indeed quite complex. Um, and these are just a few examples of that complexity. So here on the upper left, I have an example at the sort of 500 meter or kilometer scale um, where you can see quite significant amount of fault zone complexity. Um, and one of the things that I wanted to point out um, in this uh, figure is that these fault zones, um, not only is there complexity along single fault strands, um, but there is a lot of additional complexity in terms of these additional fault strands that are in related um, areas let's say within the zone that people might think of as the fault zone. So at the sort of kilometer scale or 500 meter scale, um, there are all of these different structures um, that uh, potentially uh, interact uh, during an earthquake. Um, and this is true at the a smaller scale as well. Um, and so there are not, maybe not as many good observations at these smaller scales, but there are these at least a couple, um, these are a couple of um, observations from Mark Swanson uh, for an exhumed fault in Maine, actually the, the fault that was on my title slide, um, which um, since the time that it was seismogenic, it has had very little deformation. Um, and so one can see um, almost perfectly intact what these uh, fault structures looked like when it was seismogenic um, at seven or eight kilometers depth. Um, and what you can see here is again, at this relatively small scale now, at a either two meter scale or at the four meter scale, um, you can again see this uh, significant amount of fault zone complexity um, that um, really you can see all of these different structures and you can even trace the um, amount of slip um, that was on each of these different structures um, at the meter scale. Um, and um, yeah, so basically all of the different field observations that we've had um, show that uh, basically everywhere we've gone, um, there's some amount of geometrical complexity of, of these fault zones. And in fact, this is even true of fault zones that um, are notoriously thought of as simple. Um, so this is one example from the Punchbowl Fault. The Punchbowl Fault is maybe the fault that um, people think of as being the most uh, stereotypically simple um, with a, a very clean knife edge principal slip surface, um, uh, which people interpret that a lot of the slip has occurred on. 
But even a fault as simple as the punchable fault um, has qu quite significant geometrical complexity um, at a range of scales. So both at the five kilometer scale here, um, where you can see um, a lot of different structures um, where um, slip could be uh, partitioned between, let's say, um, and also at this relatively small scale where you see the principal slip surface in the middle, um, but at the centimeter scale, you can also see uh, quite a, a lot of complexity of uh, what the fault zone actually looks like and uh, potentially where uh, slip might have occurred in the past, um, even for these uh, relatively simple faults. So with that motivation, um, I'm going to spend really the rest of this talk uh, talking about the potential role that these, um, let's say, this, this geometrical complexity of fault zones could have on, um, on earthquake ground motions. Um, and I'm going to take now a step back and really think about this uh, thought experiment about, well, what happens when an earthquake nucleates um, within a, a nominally complex fault zone? Um, what do we expect should happen? Um, and are there predictions that we can make about what happens? So in this thought experiment, um, um, I'm going to envision there being a complex uh, fault zone. Um, um, and we're just going to assume that this complex fault zone exists. Uh, so for example, there are all of these possible black lines, which are fault structures uh, within a larger fault zone. Um, and let's say that um, an earthquake uh, starts along what we call this principal slip surface in green. Um, and um, an earthquake starts to uh, propagate um, on this uh, principal slip surface. Uh, the question that um, I'm asking here and that hopefully I can lead you through today is, well, wh what happens next? Um, what happens when this um, slip tries to uh, continue to propagate as an earthquake? Um, and what happens uh, explicitly due to uh, the, the geometrical complexity of the fault zone? Well, perhaps the, the thing that I want you to notice is that um, just like uh, people study stepovers and compressional bends and extensional bends um, at a larger scale, um, within the fault zone scale, we also see that there are these compressional um, segments. For example, there's one of them um, right here. Uh, you might think of this as a compressional stepover if it were at a larger scale. Um, and there's extensional stepovers um, at, um, um, in other places like over there. And so one of the questions then is, well, if a slip really tries to, uh, tries to occur at a scale that's larger than the scale um, of these structures, then something has to happen at each of these um, stepover points. Um, in particular, if you think about what happens at this compressional, um, compressional bend in the fault, um, basically the stresses get loaded to a very high uh, amount. And there's a question then about what happens next um, with one of the options being that slip gets transferred um, to one of those subsidiary faults that is assumed to exist here. So if I were to draw what might happen um, um, at one of these um, stepover points, um, one of the options when slip tries to occur at this, um, at this point is that you could have slip transferred from what was the green fault um, to this blue fault. Um, or you could have slip transferred from this green fault uh, to this red fault um, over here. And um, 
one way of thinking about what happens there is that as slip occurs, um, there is this geometrical incompatibility um, at each of these points, which results in elastic loading of that point. Um, and if the slip transfers onto a different strand, uh, then there's unloading of stress um, at each of those points. Um, so this is a, a sort of qualitative way of thinking about it, but I think it's a very useful one because uh, one can now think about it in terms of the structures in between the faults. And what happens if you, for example, consider um, this structure over in the upper left is that it was originally moving towards the right um, because of this right lateral shear that was imposed on it. Uh, but after the slip transfers to the to the blue fault, then that um, structure would have would okay, now sorry. be moving to the left or mostly to the left, not exactly to the left. Um, so if you think about then what happens to that structure, it was originally moving to the right and now it's moving mostly to the left. Um, and what really occurred during that transition is that there was um, a change in momentum of this little structure within the fault zone. Um, that uh, transferred its momentum from, um, uh, from going to the right to going to the left. And so that is the type of behavior that I'm gonna talk about today. And um, the way that I'm gonna think about um, each of these um, slip transfer events is really in terms of these structures in between the faults. And it's a different way um, than most people usually think about it. But if you, if you think about it now in terms of those structures, um, that change in momentum uh, from going to the right to going to the left can be really thought of um, as an impact event, um, even though um, this uh, structure is highly confined within the fault zone, um, and it's not like a traditional impact, like you might think of as a ball hitting uh, the uh, table surface. Um, so it's not unconfined like that, but it has some of the same physics um, as an unconfined impact in the sense that the momentum change is important and that in this momentum change, the most important physics is actually the elastic compression and elastic, um, uh, the elastic loading and unloading that occurs during that uh, change in momentum. And one of the interesting consequences of thinking about it in this way is that actually to first order, the prediction of this kind of impact model um, is that the momentum transfer that occurs, or in other words, the contribution to ground motion that this additional uh, slip transfer event caused is actually somewhat independent of friction. And that's a interesting consequence, um, but it's really because friction only comes into second order in thinking about um, what is happening to that structure. Um, it's true that if you were to include friction, you would get a slightly different answer. Um, but if friction is relatively low, you know, in the in the less than one um, type of number, um, then then the typically the uh, contribution due to the uh, friction is is relatively small to that. And um, and uh, the other thing I wanted to focus on was that um, in terms of thinking about these impact events. Uh, the time scale of these impact events can really be thought of uh, just like the time scale of a ball bouncing on a table um, in terms of the amount of elastic compression and the amount of um, um, elastic loading and unloading that has to happen uh, during one of these events. Um, and uh, what 
there's a question then of what, what causes that time scale or the spectral contribution. Um, and it's really the size and the geometry of these objects um, that, um, that causes the, um, the time scale, um, or in other words, causes the uh, frequency um, contribution uh, to each of these uh, impact events. Um, so in other words, if you know something about the size and the structures of each of these um, fault zone pieces, uh, then you can make a prediction in terms of what is the time scale or what is the frequency content that you would expect of these additional contributions uh, to ground motion uh, beyond having this um, overall, let's say, right lateral shear uh, superimposed on top of that. Um, something that I'm not going to really have time to get into is that uh, you can make a prediction for the, um, for the spectra um, given the uh, known statistics of the size and the geometry of these, um, of these uh, structures or of the faults between them. Um, and um, I'm not going to get into um, exactly how, how we do that, but um, the nice thing is that we don't need to know um, everything about um, all of these structures. As long as we know something about the statistics of them, um, then we can make some predictions about the expected time scales or, or the expected frequency uh, content. Okay, and I'm, I'm just gonna spend one slide talking about some of the details of the model um, because I think it's important to, to show um, really how relatively simple um, this model is um, because it's an elastic impact model um, where elasticity is really the only ingredient that is important to first order. Um, then uh, we have a relatively simple theory for understanding um, how these um, impacts uh, cause ground motions, and in particular, um, with a focus on the time scale um, of the of the additional forcings that are created. Um, and this theory goes back to um, Hertz from more than 100 years ago. Um, as a side note, um, Hertz was actually interested in um, trying to understand the elastic loading of glass plates um, as they were compressed together. Um, but the same theory can explain. Um, the time scales of a ball bouncing on, on, on a table. Uh, for example, trying to understand how long is the ball actually in contact with the surface of the table. Um, and that time scale is very much important to understanding what time scale of uh, ground motion is produced um, from that um, impact event. Um, and in the same way, we can think about uh, the time scale of these structures and how they interact with each other in the fault zone. Um, and I'm not going to get really into the details here, but we have a prediction, a very simple prediction that goes back to Hertzian theory about the time scale. Um, this, this is the contact time scale and how the contact time scale is related to different properties um, of those structures. Uh, so it's related to the mass of each of the, um, each of the particles, um, related to the radius of curvature, related to the elastic modulus, um, and related to the velocity of impact. Um, and you can translate that. Um, into um, this other equation where you can see that um, there's actually only two um, parameters here that um, are to a relatively high power. Um, first of all, there's this linear relationship between the time scale um, and the size of these structures where R is the, um, let's say, average size of one of these structures. Um, and then the only other parameter here that has a significant um, dependence is this, uh, C parameter, which has to do with the geometry um, of the structure. Um, so um, this has to do with the aspect ratio um, of the structure. 
Um, and uh, this uh, the time scale goes as C to the four fifths power, so a relatively high power, um, whereas all of the other parameters um, um, are scaling with a relatively low power. Um, and what that implies is really that um, it's really this geometric parameter um, and the size parameter um, that have the biggest effect, um, the biggest predicted effect on what the time scale of these impacts is, and hence what the frequency content um, should be. Um, there are complexities due to, you know, lots of different uh, possible geometries um, that I'm not going to get into. Um, but this has some interesting conclusions if you um, if you believe this type of model might explain uh, some of the ground motions. Um, and I'll just highlight two of them, which is that um, if you believe that um, this is what is causing additional contributions to ground motion beyond just the uh, large scale um, planar shear, uh, then there's this component of ground motions um, that is caused by the geometry of these structures um, and really not caused by friction, at least to first order. Um, there's a small frictional um, component, um, but at least it's not important if you make a first order prediction. Um, and so that's very much different from how most people think about um, the contributions to um, high frequency ground motions, where the standard model would be saying that um, uh, there's a component uh, of high frequency ground motions that is due to very small scale slip on a planar surface or a nearly planar surface, uh, maybe with a little bit of roughness. Um, and this model is um, uh, claiming uh, something quite different from that, that it's really caused by the geometry and the, um, the size and the, and, the, um, and the geometric characteristics of those, um, of those different structures. The second implication that I wanted to highlight today is that um, if you were to make stress drop inferences from um, high frequency corner, uh, corner frequency measurements, um, and there's this additional contribution to ground motions that's caused by these elastic impacts, um, well, then that means that the, the model you should be using to interpret those um, corner frequencies uh, would need to be modified and would need to be modified to include this component that's related to uh, geometry. Um, and so there's this implication that uh, potentially these seismological inferences of stress drop um, may be biased uh, by, um, by these contributions to high frequency ground motion um, from these uh, geometrical complexities. Okay, so that's all um, I think I'm gonna say about the sort of predictions that we make from, um, from this sort of uh, uh, geometric, uh, this fault, fault network complexity model. Um, and I'm gonna spend the rest of this talk uh, talking about some of the observational, some of the predicted observational differences um, and um, how we can try to go about testing whether this elastic impact model um, really, um, let's say, can explain some of the observations that we see. Um, I think I'm only going to have time today to talk about this first one, um, but there are a series of different types of predictions we make um, from this model. So we make predictions in terms of uh, differences and what causes the variability of high frequency ground motion. That's um, stuff that I already talked about. Um, something that I didn't really talk about much um, is that we also predict there to be differences in the high frequency focal mechanisms compared to uh, what standard models would predict. Um, and we also predict differences in the, um, the ratios of um, P to S wave energies um, at, um, 
um, especially at high frequencies. Um, but I'm really just going to um, focus on this first one because I think that's all I'm going to have time to talk about. Um, and as I mentioned previously, uh, these sort of standard rough fault frictional models um, predict that um, uh, heterogeneity and stress drop, um, heterogeneous slip, um, and to some extent, the off-fault um, uh, viscoplastic um, parameters. Um, so in terms of the viscosity or some of these other parameters that might um, apply off of the fault, um, that's what these rough fault frictional models predict um, causes the variability in high-frequency ground motion. Um, whereas um, what I've shown today is that the elastic impact model, um, it's the size of the structures and the geometry um, of those structures that um, predicts what that um, high-frequency um, ground motion um, should be. And so I'm going to talk about this one observational study that um, actually was led by Shanna Chu, um, where uh, we uh, tried to take that prediction um, and tried to see if there was any observational evidence um, that, um, the, uh, that the impact model um, might be um, predicting something reasonable. Um, so what we did was we tried to, um, uh, first of all, we, in order to do the study, uh, we basically needed to design these different metrics um, that corresponded to, to what we expected um, of the impact model in terms of what causes these differences in ground motions. Um, and as I mentioned before, there's the structural aspect ratio and the, and the average size of the structures that we think is the most important. Um, and so the first thing that we did in this study was we defined these two metrics um, that we could um, make um, using a known uh, map of faults. Um, and so with a known uh, map of faults, we could measure what we call the misalignment to do with how aligned versus misaligned uh, faults are within a fault network. Um, and this misalignment of faults um, is very much related to the structural aspect ratios. Uh, just as an example of what that misalignment would look like in different scenarios, if you think about these blue lines as being nominal faults in some fault network, um, if the two, if the faults in some region are relatively parallel to each other, um, then the fault misalignment we would get is um, basically zero. And if the faults are very much misaligned with respect to each other, um, then the, um, the misalignment ratio would be relatively high. Uh, with, uh, with a bound of one um, as being the highest number that you can get. Um, and this example having a misalignment ratio of 0 0.9. So uh, let's say a very high misalignment. Um, and everything in between um, gives you um, fault misalignments that are, are in between those two numbers. Um, and as I mentioned, you can uh, take this uh, metric of, of uh, fault network complexity that has to do with misalignment um, and measure it for real faults. Um, so this is an example um, going to the COSO region of California um, and taking the uh, USGS uh, fault, fault, um, uh, fault database um, and measuring uh, the misalignment ratio um, for this COSO region. And what we find um, is that in this region, the misalignment ratio is a value of 0 0.29. This ends up being actually a relatively low value um, compared to other regions in Southern California, uh, which have um, higher misalignment um, <laughs> rates. Um, and then the other thing that we did was we came up with a metric um, that's related to the size of the structures. Um, and this one is maybe more straightforward, um, just related to the density of faults. 
Um, and uh, the density of faults is uh, directly related to the average structural sizes. Um, and the example here is below, where um, maybe it's obvious that uh, if there's very few faults, then the structures between those faults are relatively large. Um, so the fault density is small. That corresponds to relatively large structures. And when you have lots and lots of faults cross-cutting uh, through a fault network, um, then the average structural sizes are quite small. Um, and this corresponds to a high uh, density, um, density, fault, density of faults. Um, and again, uh, one can make this measurement on, on real uh, observed fault networks that we have, um, including those in Southern, Southern California. So uh, a, a couple things to note about these two different metrics. Um, the way that we constructed it, uh, we constructed this misalignment ratio to be scale independent. Um, and what that means is that if you had a fractal network of faults, uh, then if you measured that misalignment ratio at a large scale versus you measured it at a smaller scale, um, then you would get the same number. Um, and um, that's especially important um, as we will see later because most of the fault maps that we have are at relatively coarse resolution. Um, and the, um, the, uh, the fault zones that we're thinking about are actually at relatively high resolution. Um, and they're at higher resolution than we really have good fault maps for. Um, so some of the implications um, of this work are important um, that this be a scale independent property. Um, unfortunately, density is not scale independent. Um, but if you have a fractal network of faults, um, then we know how um, this um, density of fault number would scale with the fractal dimension. And it scales um, actually exactly with the fractal dimension D, um, if, if you know what that is. OK, so with that background, um, uh, what we can do is then go to um, a place like Southern California, which has measured um, or which has a relatively good fault maps um, and also has relatively good measurements of, of um, earthquake ground motions. Um, from um, a variety of different earthquakes. Um, and what we did in this study that Shanna Chu led uh, was that we tried to see if there was a correlation between um, the measured stress drops. Um, so these measured stress drops are actually from corner frequency measurements. Um, and these corner frequency measurements, we think, um, correspond somewhat to um, how much high frequency ground motion um, is observed in each of these earthquakes or at least it correlates with the high-frequency high ground motions. Um, and we tried to see whether um, these two metrics, this misalignment ratio and the density ratio, um, had any predictive power um, over those. Um, and as you can see here, um, especially if you focus just on the green dots, which, which we have the most um, data for, um, unfortunately, the other regions, we didn't have as much data. So it's harder to draw a strong conclusion. Um, based on that, but just from this um, southeast region of Southern California, um, we took um, Peter Shearer's uh, uh, 2006 stress drop catalog um, for the for the y-axis here, um, and our measurements of the misalignment ratio on the x-axis here. Um, and what you can see with these green dots in particular um, is that there's um, actually quite a bit of the scatter um, that we can explain in, uh, in terms of the measured stress drops being related to the misalignment ratio. Um, in fact, it's a, it's a relatively large number, although the scatter is large. Um, so there's approximately a factor of 10 um, variability in stress drop um, or apparent stress drop 
um, um, related to the corner frequency that we can explain due to the misalignment ratio. Um, and that's a relatively large number. So stress drops you know, vary by uh, two or three orders of magnitude. Um, so we're definitely not explaining all of the uh, all of the deviations in stress drop, but we can explain a significant fraction of that, um, approximately this factor of 10, um, in, in, um, in going from low misalignment ratio uh, to relatively high misalignment ratio. Now, it turns out that the density um, also has a correlation. Um, the correlation is not quite as good, um, and actually some of this correlation with density we think actually is because of the misalignment ratio, because um, they correlate to some extent. Um, but there is also a, um, a, a degree to which the measured stress drops um, correlate with the um, observed um, density of faults um, in a region. Um, unfortunately, this one's a little bit harder to do, um, partly because of what I mentioned before, which is that um, uh, this is not a scale-independent property. Um, so if the observations are not at the scale that we would like, um, then it's it's unclear that um, the measurements we make are are as useful um, as the uh, misalignment ratio. But in other in, in any case, um, we we do explain a significant amount of this um, variability, um, and so we think that it's a promising thing in terms of the um, this impact model um, having a some predictive power. Um, one thing that I just wanted to briefly note is that um, my new student, uh, Jaysok Lee, is, um, is doing some work extending this um, to other regions. Um, of course, it might be um, interesting to note how this trend looks in other regions. Um, unfortunately, there's not very many places around the world that have as good data um, as Southern California. Um, but uh, he has been looking at Japan and Italy, where there are relatively good fault maps and relatively good stress drop measurements. Um, and his preliminary findings um, are that, um, again, in these regions, um, this misalignment ratio can, um, can explain um, a significant trend um, in, in both of those regions as well. Um, one of the maybe not so um, um, optimistic findings is that he finds that in, in both of these regions, um, the density um, of faults um, does not have any explanatory power. Um, part of the reason might be because the observations are simply not as good as Southern California, and Southern California is is already probably on the cusp of of having the um, having the resolution that we need um, to make a useful uh, prediction uh, for these um, earthquakes. Okay, so um, so uh, yeah, so I, I've shown that. Actually, I didn't really talk much about um, what the predictions of the rough fault frictional model would have been. Um, but basically, the um, rough fault frictional model um, predicts that it's primarily due to heterogeneous slip um, that causes these variabilities in high-frequency ground motions. Um, but one of the challenges of using this in a predictive sense is that it's very difficult to predict <laughs> where uh, there will be heterogeneous slip for any particular earthquake. Whereas for the elastic impact model, we can actually quite easily observe the um, at least the surface traces of these fault networks. Um, and of course, that's not a perfect um, measurement of what the fault networks are doing at depth. Um, and uh, certainly that's a challenge that we need to deal with um, in going forward. But um, at least we can measure something that we can then use to um, make predictions for different regions and how that would result in high frequency ground motion variability uh, for different earthquakes from those different regions. Okay, so I think I'm gonna summarize now. Um, so I've shown that 
uh, frictional models have difficulties explaining some of the observations, um, in particular how high those high frequency ground motions are, um, and that this uh, geometrical, geometrically complex fault zone impact model um, can explain some of the observations. Um, and um, finally, I just wanted to leave you with this, um, that the impact model has these significant implications for interpreting seismological data um, and predicting earthquake damage. Um, of course, we're far from knowing that this is the truth, um, but I think at least this preliminary work shows that it's a promising direction to think about um, and where we can actually have some degree of predictability for um, some of the earthquake ground motions, um, even at these relatively high frequencies. So with that, um, I will close it and I will take um, questions. Thanks. Um, uh, Hi, Victor, can you hear me? Yes. Cool. I'm Austin Elliott. Thanks for the um, compelling conceptual model that you presented here. I'm wondering about sort of the last stuff you showed, um, the relationships between calculated misalignment and density and then stress drops. The, so you're looking at the, those parameters are calculated for just the regional fault map around the events you're considering, right? Rather yeah. than, so it's essentially assuming that the event is involving the, well, that the, <laughs> that the region contains a representative distribution of faults that the event would have sort of taken yes. advantage of or involved, right? And so have you looked at or sort of challenged that assumption? Have you looked at maybe events that do have really good rupture mapping? Mm -hmm. um, obviously, that's a much more limited data set. But yeah. have you looked at this in terms of like for actual events where you know which faults ruptured, do you yeah. see that same correlation? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, so first of all, you're you're exactly right that you know we're we're taking these fault network or these fault maps that are at a very large scale. Um, so the USGS fault maps, um, the resolution um, is maybe at the 10 kilometer scale, right? And the scales that I'm actually thinking about in this model are in the sub kilometer scale, right? So maybe 100 meter scale. Um, in some cases, even smaller than 100 meter scale. Um, especially for these relatively small earthquakes. Um, and um, it's a good point in terms of um, trying to get go to places that have better um, observations. Uh, one thing that we have done, we have looked at the Ridgecrest sequence. Um, and so in the Ridgecrest area, um, it does seem like this, uh, this correlation still stands, right? Meaning that if you go to sub uh, Ridgecrest scales and look at um, regions that have um, regions of the Ridgecrest uh, aftershock sequence um, that have relatively uh, larger stress drops versus lower stress drops, um, that they um, that the higher stress drops occur in regions that have more geometrical complexity um, compared to, to ones where they do not. Uh, but um, as you might have also implied, there are uh, a very small number of data sets <laughs> where one can even try to do this study, um, and we really need better observations. Um, one, one of the possible future directions here is thinking about trying to use seismicity um, to try to constrain some of these, um, let's say, fault networks, at, especially at depth. Um, but that's still a direction that we haven't uh, gone into very much. Well, thank you. Sure. Rob Graves, you want to unmute yourself? 
Yeah. Okay. Hey, Victor. Uh, great talk. Very interesting. Um, and I've seen this a couple times, and I'm I'm very intrigued by this. Um, yeah. And actually, what I, I you know I've kind of been thinking about. Well, can we model this somehow? And I'm thinking kind of from a kinematic standpoint. So maybe not trying to understand all the you know physics, but you know just model the um, the the phenomena. So I'm curious if you have. Uh, like, you know, if you thought about maybe how you could represent these using a moment tensor, for example, you know, what what would they look like? Yeah. Um, and then a related part or related to that is, you know, as the say the rupture comes up and it transfers along these small network of faults. Um, would that also maybe. Uh, uh, lead to starting and stopping of the rupture, you know, mm -hmm. kind of on a very yeah. small scale. So yeah. the, those those two kind of questions, I'm wondering yeah. if you have uh, some thoughts. Thanks. Yeah. So both both are great questions. Um, let me try to start with the first um, about how to include these in in a in a model kinematically. Um, it's actually quite easy, um, and it's not in terms of a moment tensor. Um, each of these impact events is really like a single force. Um, and you could, in a kinematic model, you know, just introduce a bunch of single forces that you would think would nominally correspond with um, these impact events. Um, every time one of these structures moves from going to the right to going to the left, um, that is one of these impact events. And you can try to include the variability and angle uh, that you would expect from a known geometry um, of a um, or some expected geometry of your of your fault zone. Uh, one of the things that I didn't really mention earlier is that actually those angles end up being quite large <laughs> compared to the average angles of the um, faults themselves. Um, and that has to do with just how, how you get an impact angle from a, from a geometry of a fault. Um, but that's an important thing that would need to be included um, if you wanted to include that kinematically. Um, and I do think that that would be a great direction to go. Um, because one can make those predictions, right? One could take a geometry of a known fault. Uh, one could estimate how frequently you would expect these um, single forces to occur um, and then add that in kinematically to a model. Um, and one of the things that you predict to be different from a moment tensor model um, is that uh, you get this difference in P to S wave um, energy um, because of these single forces. So um, hopefully that answered that question. Um, Remind me what your second question was. Yeah, sorry, sorry about that. Yeah, I was just curious if you had ideas. Would there be like a starting and stopping of the rupture uh, yeah. at a very fine scale that yeah. might also increase high frequency radiation? Yeah, yeah. So that's a great question about whether this has implications for the dynamics of the earthquake itself. Um, it's not something that I've spent a whole lot of time thinking about yet. Um, but I do think it's a very important question, right, in terms of trying to understand um, whether um, it would, let's say, as you said, cause cause earthquakes to stop or start um, again, um, and how best to think about that. So I'm not sure I have much useful to say at this point, um, except that I would be very interested in sort of following up on that uh, to think about what the consequences for the dynamics are. Right now, I've only really thought about the consequences for ground motion. Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks, Victor. Yep, thank you. Chris? I didn't ever want to hear you.
Hello, um, that was a great talk, Victor. Uh, so I was wondering about the depth, uh, the the other, the third dimension, because uh, uh, yeah. the model, the model is a is a two D model, and it's a really cool model. I really enjoyed reading your papers when they first came out, and uh, all, all the exciting work that's been done on it. But I was wondering about the third dimension, because maybe the uh, there will be effects from uh, temperature, pressure, um, mm. chemical yes. reactions, all, all sorts of things that can happen with depth. So I was wondering what you're thinking about that is. Yeah, so so you're definitely right. Um, <laughs> there's definitely there definitely should be a third dimension um, included. Um, I will say I haven't really thought too much um, about um, exactly how to include the third dimension um, in this, um, except to say that uh, we know that there's variability in other properties. Uh, so, for example, um, maybe some of the things you were referring to is, um, you know, temperature is changing with depth, and you might expect the uh, the uh, how much seismogenesis there is in the first place uh, to be changing, right? So there there are all the, these other physical properties, and and you would want to um, include. Um, the right physical properties um, in this in this model um, for these other depths. Uh, yeah, you know, again, I'm not sure I have much else to say except that um, may maybe I'll say one thing about the observations. Uh, so, so what what I showed today uh, in the observational sense, um, the the best correlations we can see for these strike slip faults, like in California. Um, and, and potentially one of the reasons for that um, is because of that third dimension. Um, you know, strike slip faults, uh, we have a, a, the best observed um, constraints on what those um, geometries are in the direction of slip, which we think are the most important. Um, and unfortunately for some of these other faults like thrust faults, um, it's, it's much more difficult to use uh, surface observations um, to constrain what we think the right properties are um, at depth. Um, and um, that's going to be an important point going forward, um, if, especially if we want to apply this model to um, all sorts of different faults and not just strike slip faults. Um, but um, yeah, I guess that's that's future work. <laughs> okay, thank you. Yeah. Victor, that was a, a, a cool model and a great presentation. Thanks. It gave me a lot to think about. Uh, as you mentioned at the outset of your presentation, the high frequency ground motion in the near field uh, and the far field is can be very affected both by the source and by by the path and heterogeneities uh, yeah. all path. Uh, have you thought about uh, ways in which a perennial problem of separating those two out uh, yes. in terms of uh, identifying effects that you could earmark to your uh, model as opposed to scattering effects that you don't consider? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, in general, a very difficult problem. Um, and maybe the only useful thing that I have to say is that um, an obvious point, which is that if the, the closer and closer that we can get to the source, um, the easier it is to observe these source effects and to be convinced that they're not related to, let's say, scattering along the path. Um, maybe I'll just show very briefly this part that I didn't get to, uh, which was about um, the focal mechanisms. Um, and this 
um, comparison of the observations used this very dense network um, in Oklahoma, this lasso array um, that I think the USGS was partly responsible for putting out. Um, but in any case, within this lasso array, we could see that um, there are these changes in the high frequency focal mechanisms um, that changes quite dramatically as you go from low frequency to, to high frequency. Um, and the one thing that relates to your question is that uh, for this array, actually we can be quite confident, um, at least for this very small array, um, that, the, um, that this transition in the focal mechanism is not due to scattering. Um, and that's because we can correct for it using uh, all, of, all of the information from all of these thousands of, um, of sensors that we have, uh, which is very, very difficult to do <laughs> if you don't have this kind of high quality network. Um, so I'm not sure that's a real a good answer to your question, but um, I think we really do need these high these um, high density observations if we're going to make some um, progress in distinguishing between um, scattering and source effects. Thanks. I I think it's a very good answer. <laughs> Thanks. Okay, so there's a question online from Russell Gramer. Have you looked at maps of surface rupture to see if the slip transfer onto branch faults does occur at restraining steps? And if so, what proportion of the slip is involved? That is, how much of the earthquake energy is in the impact events? Yeah, good question. So uh, have we looked at different events and seen how they re how these potential slip transfers um, uh, relate to the stepovers? Yeah, so I've only done a limited amount of work trying to uh, trying to go in this direction. I've mostly been motivated by work that other people have done. So for example, the work from Mark Swanson, which actually very nicely shows that at basically at every one of these um, uh, compressional stepovers, uh, you see a slip transfer um, that occurs during uh, what's interpreted at least to be as during a single earthquake event. Um, and so during a single earthquake event, you definitely have these um, transitions happening at this uh, very small scale. Uh, maybe the question was really asking about the larger scale, um, and that's not, a, um, not really a direction that I have tried to go into. Um, but my understanding is that the geologists do indeed see, um, let's say, uh, complexity and slip related to stepovers. Um, I don't know exactly what the fraction is that um, is explained with these geological observations. I see Tom Hanks has his hand up. Yeah, let me unmute myself. Uh, <clears throat> thank you, Shannon. Thank you, uh, Victor, for a very interesting talk. If we could go back to the very first slide, your your title slide, sure. and and tell me about what kind of rocks these are, and you got some very, you know, fine and thin layering there. Is that due to tectonic stretching or thinning, or are those original? sedimentary structures, if indeed they're sedimentary rocks. I'm not sure from looking from here what they are. Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, I don't know a whole lot about the geology, but I'll try to answer your question. Um, so first of all, the one thing to note is that the, the fault zone that I showed in the title slide, so this is work from Mark Swanson, um, 
Um, there's been basically no deformation of this fault zone uh, since it was seismogenic. Um, so it was exhumed from depth, um, almost entirely intact. Uh, and at least Mark's, uh, Mark Swanson's interpretation of uh, this particular part of the fault zone um, is that it was a single event, um, maybe two events um, that occurred to produce um, all of the complexity that was observed, this geometrical complexity within um, the fault zone that's observed. Um, in terms of uh, the foliation, um, I think part of it is related to it previously being at deeper depths. Um, so there was some amount of um, some amount of this foliation that's related to, uh, let's say, metamorphism in general, right? So it's uh, it's it's not all primary in terms of why you see this very fine, why you see this um, sort of linear trends here, um, but basically all of the deformation that you see um, here is is seismogenic. So I'm not sure that explained answered your question, but um, yeah, maybe I would refer you to Mark's paper <laughs> if you're interested in more details. I thought you said that a lot of the thinning here might have occurred at, at deeper and potentially aseismic depths <coughs> where the, you're getting the deformation, but you're not getting earthquakes, but you are getting the stretching and thinning of the rocks. Yeah, so none of the, none of the fault offsets that are observed here um, occurred um, aseismically. So there's all these, um, um, for example, there's these um, melt um, pseudotacolite um, inclusions that you can see um, related to um, this fault slip. Um, and so it's really thought that all of the deformation um, within this relatively small area um, is actually due to seismic events. Um, and it's just that uh, some of the earlier imprinting due to metamorphism is probably the reason that you have some of this um, um, lineations in the first place. Okay, thank you. Sure. So um, we are at time. Um, I'm just going to read one more question in the chat from Morgan Page, and then we can stop the recording. Um, Morgan asks about your teasing with respect to the last row of the observational differences, P to S energy ratio. What is the observation? Thanks. Sorry, I'm not sure I caught that, but what, what was the observation about the energy ratios, the P to S wave ratios? Yeah. Ah, <laughs> that's a difficult one. Um, I'm not sure that there are really any great observations of the unaltered P to S wave energy ratios. Um, and pertaining to, I think it was Wayne Thatcher's comment, uh, pertaining to whether um, scattering did not play a role. Um, so pretty much uh, all of the observations that I know about um, or that people have analyzed, um, scattering has played a significant role um, in determining what the actual observed P to S wave energies are. Um, and what we would want to look at is what the unaltered uh, P to S wave energies are before, let's say there was significant scattering. Um, it's a good question as to you know, what data set um, we might wanna look at. Um, are there any of these very dense 3D array data sets um, that might um, might have good observations of what those unaltered uh, P to S wave energies are? Um, but that's, um, and I would love to talk to you about that if you have, have any thoughts about that.
Give our speaker another round of applause and we can start the recording. We'll just have a open session.